Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg and Kevin Williamson. And uh, okay, wow. So there's been some breaking news. We're going to start with a short little discussion on the Trump indictment. We'll go from there to talk more about the shooting in Nashville and what, if anything, there is to say about gun control in the United States moving forward. Uh, And then we'll talk a little bit about France, entitlement reform. Before we get to not worth your time, question mark. Trump becomes the first United States president, former president, uh, indicted of a felony. Um, But at the same time, the indictment's under seal. And so we don't know a whole lot more than we knew several hours ago in terms of what exactly he's being um, indicted for. We're making the same assumptions that we were making before, that this is uh, the felony aggravated falsification of business records under New York state law, which requires sort of this federal crime tie-in, and that it's related to the hush money payments that he made uh, to Stormy Daniels. But I don't know, Kevin, are you feeling any differently than you were? Yeah, in some ways. Um, I like the idea of any ex-president being indicted um, in some ways, uh, simply because we have this weird emerging, you know, presidential cult thing where we treat them as though they're, you know, this sort of special class of human beings because they used to hold a particular office for the rest of their life. So I like the idea that, you know, you're not the president anymore. You're just Joe Blow. You're subject to investigation and uh, and the law like anybody else is. And um, that being said, if it is the kind of creative and weak and uh, troubled uh, indictment that we're all expecting, uh, at least what I've been expecting from listening to to you and David and other people talk about it, then that's going to end up, I think, being um, a really, really ugly mess. You know, I think that um, particularly for someone like Donald Trump, a uh, character who is um, has already demonstrated his ability to turn people out to commit acts of political violence and uh, social disturbances and that sort of thing. If you're going to indict him, obviously, you want it to be a really, really tight and persuasive one rather than one that relies on very novel legal theory and that may be perceived as weak or hashed together or something like that. Although I suspect that if the other indictments come down as expected, you know, in toto, the effect will be persuasive and uh, credible. Don't you think? Um, I'm, I'm not sure because this one went first and I feel like, you know, as people talk about um, you know, I, I totally take your point, Kevin, for instance, on the sort of deification of former presidents. I'm not for it. Um, you know, in fact, we had a conversation uh, in the comments section a few weeks ago about whether even formers should still be called by their titles, right? Uh, you know, just because you were a senator, why are we still calling you senator and president? You know, these aren't titles of nobility. But um, I don't think they should be treated worse than normal people. And uh, I'm not the first person to point this out, but if Donald Trump weren't Donald Trump, it's very hard to see this indictment moving forward. Both it's seven years old. We're not aware of any new evidence that's been uncovered. uh, And there's such shaky legal grounds. The, you know, the reason to pursue this is because it's Donald Trump. So this whole like presidents aren't above the law thing. That whole statement's really bothering me that I hear from, you know, political folks, because surely they're also not below the law either. Um, We shouldn't punish people for running for office. I mean, God knows it's punishment enough. Uh, Jonah, Kevin raises a point, though. Politically, um, you know, now that it's actually happened, Donald Trump has put out a statement. Political effects? Yeah, let me just let me touch on one thing you said first, and then I'll, I'll do political effects. I um, and you clipped out a little bit for me, so I may have missed some really granular nuance that preempted my point here. But um, uh, I agree. I got in a lot of Trump trouble because the Trump war room retweeted a clip of me on CNN saying if if this was John Smith, uh, this this would never be charged. And I still stand by that. I just don't like being used by the Trump war room. Um, But. Uh, that said, the 
you know, Trump likes to say, if they can do this to me, they can do this to you. That's not true, right? It's not true in all sorts of ways. Because starting with just like, no one would want to do it to John Smith, right? And so it cuts both ways in that, yeah, he's being treated separately. And I, like, you and I have gone round the horn a little bit on this, and we're going to go round the horn more on it about, I, I think your stock divide defense of the rule of law is admirable and correct. And I'm glad that the lawyers are staying in that lane. Uh, that said, karmically, zero sympathy for Donald Trump. Um, if, if I, I am capable of being outraged for the sake of the legal system, I'm not capable of being outraged on behalf of Donald Trump. Okay. I, but, but so for instance, one of the guys, um, from the, uh, the group of, you know, young men um, who were charged in New York, where Donald Trump then put out a full page ad calling for the death penalty um, for them. One of them put out a statement after the indictment and it just said, karma. He was falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. And, and his response to someone else, like, I, I can't quite tell from his statement if he's saying, it's karma that you too have are now being put through the legal system unfairly. I, that's just not something good to wish. Yeah, asymmetrical karma. Yeah, it's asymmetrical. <laughs> but that's that's one of the great things about karma is it doesn't follow Euclidean geometry, right? It doesn't have to be like, you know, uh, perfectly rational. The statement also said like he never apologized for it. So like, you know, that I think was part of the karma thing. Look, my only point about about the karma thing is it, to to tie it back. I mean, we can we can we can argue about karma and law again another time, but on the on the strictly political thing, um, or repercussions of this, I think he'll get a sugar high like he did after Mar-a-Lago. Um, there will be people, you know, already you've seen the statements coming out from Republicans that have the benefit of largely being true that this is a political thing, that this is not a great case to bring. Um, pointing out that Bragg ran on prosecuting Trump, you know, so like all of the merit, all of the, like the arguments on the merits that Republicans are making actually have merit. Unlike a lot of previous defenses of Trump that said, I, I think as Kevin was alluding to, you add in a couple more indictments and people are like, ah, really? And I don't think, even though it forces Republic, the, you know, the dynamics are weird and you know, this stuff better than I do, Sarah, but like, the Republican politicians who feel like they have to rally to Trump's defense are doing so to stay in the good graces of Trump's core supporters and nobody else. And the idea that Trump is adding real voters in significant numbers that are going to be sticky and stay with them over time, I'm very, very, very skeptical of. Yeah, a lot of people have put up a middle finger to pollsters to say Trump, you know, uh, is being railroaded. Um, but will they actually say, well, now that he's been indicted for paying off a porn star, I got to vote for the guy. And I'm just, I'm dubious that there are a lot of those voters out there. Okay, but Kevin, one of the lines that we've heard from Donald Trump and some of his uh, supporters is that this amounts to election interference. You have a uh, elected district attorney from the Democratic Party pursuing charges that you know, it's not just right wingers who say that a normal person wouldn't be charged with this. This is, you know, mainstream reporters. Dan Abrams said it on, you know, this week on ABC. Um, is this election interference? Well, no, it's not election interference. I mean, not in principle anyway. I think that um, a couple of things. One is that um, obviously we should not engage in legal shenanigans or tolerate legal shenanigans or, or shrug them off on a just get Trump, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, line of argument. That being said, I do think that people like uh, former presidents and senators and such should be held to the very highest standard of legal behavior, not get any kind of you know deference because they were in politics. I think too often we lean toward the other side of saying, well, you know, that's kind of, you know, what campaigns are all about and these things happen and he didn't win his reelection, so we'll just let it all go. Um, I think that, um, and actually I'd like to ask you about the, one question related to this. You know, the... Um, the idea that you can't prosecute someone for committing a crime because he's running for office, I think, is a dangerous idea and a dangerous precedent to set. I know that there is this idea in the Justice Department that they think they, not that they can't, but they won't indict a, a sitting president uh, for 
I guess it's not a statutory thing. It's an internal memo of some kind where they've decided it was back maybe in the 70s. You'll know this stuff and explain it to me better. Um, I understand that there's, you know, some separation of powers issues that comes up when you do that. But at the same time, um, establishing a situation in which you have someone who essentially is above the law because he is the head of a branch of government, I think is, um, even temporarily, I think is a really difficult place to be and something that's difficult to really defend on small or Republican grounds. Uh, that being said, I think- it's Oh, I'll defend it. I'll defend the out of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I certainly don't think that any sort of ordinary, ordinary crime should be treated in any different way because that person is a candidate for office or is likely to be a candidate for office. Um, interesting. So a couple of things on that. And uh, one, so A, of course, the federal you know, executive branch, the Department of Justice indicting a president that it reports to just doesn't really work you know, from any sort of unitary executive. Like literally, I don't know how that would function. Um, but what I think you're talking about is the potential for a state indictment for a sitting president. Um, and look, A, I think that's actually part of the problem with the Georgia one is there's even an issue with indicting a former president for acts he was taking while president because, um, okay, so first of all, while you're president, the answer is impeachment. You impeach the president, you remove him from office, and then you can do whatever you want to him uh, is sort of the theory behind that. Two, um, uh, you know, the, the OLC opinion that you're referring to, there is one from the 70s. It's updated then in the 90s. It continues to this day. And look, it's self-serving, right? Because it's the executive branch talking about how the head of the executive branch can't be indicted. Um, cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> nothing weird about that. Uh, so take it with a grain of salt. But the theory is that while you're president, it would be so... Um, so distracting and there could be so many political motivations to try to distract the president to, you know, force him to prepare for a trial, uh, sit for a trial, et cetera, to defend himself. And there could be hundreds of these trials throughout the country for each, you know, elected district attorney of the opposing party, that that's not something we favor. I think the former president argument gets much stronger, even if it's for actions taken while president. Um, but that's sort of the theory behind it. Um, but okay, Jonah, last question to you on this. Did we all make a mistake in the way we covered this indictment before it happened? <laughs> Why, Sarah? What an interesting question. It is an uh, interesting question. It's almost like we taped a whole podcast on that question before 5 p.m. And now we're redoing the segment after 5 p.m. <laughs> it, 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 it's almost like the podcast gods hate us. Um, and uh, But we don't need to get into the weeds on all of that. Um, yes. Um, and you were, I, I will say, you were particularly hard on yourself in this ethereal episode segment that will never be heard. It will join the ranks of episode 11 of The Remnant. Uh, but um, uh, Kevin and I came to your defense. I thought the way advisory opinions handled it was great. I think the way, you know, Kevin and his uh, piece about it, you know, was very clear that he thought the media was once again uh, sidling up at the, the, the dispensary of the BS factory that is, the, that is set up in Mar-a-Lago, or words to that effect. And um, at the same time, collectively yeah the media bought it right because what we have here is this this bat sort of baptist and bootleggers problem in the american american media where there are two groups that love trump drama people who really hate trump and people who really love trump and i know i get accused all the time of like being addicted to trump and he broke me and all this kind of stuff i'd be so happy to have trump go away so so unbelievably happy I would be skipping through fields with daffodils, playing my lyre. It would just be great. Um, and I'm going to be really impressed if you own a lyre. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no comment. So, anyway, I think I, I think the media the media took the bait, and it was we should have we certainly should have known if not when Trump moved his lips or posted something on Truth Social, then at least when his own team said. Actually, President Trump has no access to inside information from the grand jury. Um, Except it turned no... out he was right, Jonah. 
The Trump team wasn't the one who sold us a bill of goods. The Bragg team was. They clearly had this indictment from the grand jury before Trump ever said that and then held on to it. They sat on it for two weeks. Okay, but all I'm saying is that the look, we had three Republican committees leap on saying they were going to investigate Bragg and local district attorneys and pursue legislation to strip them of the ability to blah, 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 all based on an indictment no one saw, right? I mean, so like the entire conversation- And that we still haven't. And that we still haven't. The entire conversation spiraled out into the darkest recesses of the galaxy, sort of like Darth Vader's um, ship at the end of the first Star Wars. And um, I think we handled ourselves pretty well, but not perfectly, but pretty well. And, but yeah- Collectively, we all got played for suckers. <laughs> and with that, uh, let's move on to our next awful topic, um, Nashville. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Jonah, another school shooting. And it just feels exhausting and it feels like there's nothing new to say. Oh, and so, therefore, you want me to say something. Um, yeah. So, I, I think we all agree these things are hor- horrific, demonic, you know, in a very sort of literal way, not just figurative way. Um, in, and what makes them all the more preemptively exhausting is that their frequency now makes it, just really tiresome to have the same arguments all over again right and i i, I did a podcast yesterday with with uh, kevin's former podcast mate charlie cook about this um it's very easy to agree and i think everybody every half remotely moral decent or rational person agrees that these things are terrible um the problem is is that um there really are no easy solutions and um, and I think that the people who say, who pretend that there are, are doing a really severe disservice. Um, um, and conflating all gun crimes as if they are one monolithic phenomenon with one monolithic all purpose solution is also very uh, irresponsible. You know, I mean, I talk a lot about how populism is terrible and it's sort of telling a mob what it wants to hear, but there's an elite version of populism that poses as technocracy that says, oh, we know exactly what to do. And the problem is, is our democratic messy system won't let us do it. And, and the people who are these retrograde people who are holding us back um, are against democracy or against science or against reason or against decency. And if we were just given the tools to do what we want to do, we would be able to solve these problems. And they're lying. They're probably, first and foremost, they're lying to themselves. And so anyway, I just think the debates about this stuff have become so poisoned with bad faith that it's just, it's, it's very easy just to throw your hands up and say, you don't want to get involved in it. I think this case in particular got ugly really, really quickly. First of all, because whenever you shoot children, it starts at a very high level of ugliness. 
but the the mainstream media and big chunks of the right are both so irrationally obsessed with the transgender stuff that um you that it went to 11 almost instantaneously where you have people on the right talking about how um this is this is that mass shootings are a product of transgenderism which is a logic that the right really should just run away from given that there are a lot of say christian nationalists who shoot people irresponsible you know you know immorally and whenever someone says oh we got to look at christianity or we got to look at nationalism or we got to look at conservatism or whatever it's the right who screams how dare you do this guilt by association thing um similarly the left which does that guilt of the association thing all the friggin' time is now saying, how dare you do that in this case? And I'll, you know, I just saw this, um, thing, this tweet from the Washington post this morning, the attempts on the right to connect violence to transgender people come, even though transgender people are rarely the perpetrators of mass shootings, which are overwhelmingly carried out by cisgender men, according to criminal justice experts. Fair enough. But when cisgender men shoot up places, they do like, oh, is there a problem with maleness? Is there a problem with heterosexuality? Is there a problem with toxic masculinity? Is there a problem with, with, with every ism that is associated with sort of right of center stuff? You need to have a single standard about how you deal with these things. And you can see how ugly it's going to get with LGBTQ groups screaming bloody murder, bad choice of word, screaming like holy hell saying, do not release this person's manifesto. Whereas if this person was a anti-immigration type or a pro-life type, the, the manifesto would be released overnight on the front page of the New York Times. So it's just a hot mess and gross, and I hate talking about it. Kevin, I think my frustration is that um, both sides are so sure of their own, I don't want to call it moral superiority, but sort of like Jonah said, that they know the answer to all of this. And that because the other side's answer isn't the same, there can be no compromise. And so, for instance, uh, you know, one side wants to ban certain types of weapons. Regardless of, you know, some of the problems with that theory, right? California already has bans and they still have mass shootings. Or, uh, you know, that that gun wasn't used in this specific crime or whatever the case may be. They're like, yeah, but this will really help. These guns are bad. They're used in most of them. So, like, let's try that. And the other side says, let's prosecute the gun crimes that we have on the books. And they point to all these cases of liberal prosecutors, you know, deprioritizing prosecuting as felonies gun crimes or deprioritize prosecuting gun crimes at all. I think I've written that call myself a few times. That's right. Uh, And yet, to me, what's I think so frustrating is why can't we just try both? And basically, both sides will say no they have to try mine before I'm willing to try theirs. And so absolutely nobody's willing to move anywhere because there's almost this perverse, um, I don't know, this perverse incentive to stand still so as not to allow the other side to have any small buy-in into the solution to this problem. And I look at both sides and I think, you know, for instance, I didn't talk about the problems with the, you know, prosecuting more gun crimes. During the Trump administration uh, at the Department of Justice, we moved many, many federal prosecutors off white collar crime onto gun crimes and expanded something called Project Exile that had been used in Virginia nationwide, basically, in order specifically to get illegal guns off the street. That didn't stop mass shootings either. To Jonah's point, it may have brought down violent crime overall, but it didn't stop school shootings. Uh, And so both sides have solutions that I think make some sense on paper, and they're not panaceas by any means. And I guess what I think so many Americans are frustrated by is the sense that like, because you can't have your solution, we're not going to try anything at all. We're going to blame the other side, and we're going to sit here in the status quo and wait until it happens again, because it will, because we haven't changed a thing. Well, a couple things about that. One is that I think that we do have to um, keep in mind that there are problems that don't have solutions. Uh, There are problems that don't have policy solutions. 
there are problems that can be mitigated uh, but not solved. And those levels of mitigation can vary greatly from problem to problem. Uh, one of the things we get into with um, this particular issue is I don't want to impute bad faith to people, but I think that the primary motive of the conversation isn't solving the problem. It's using the problem problem to try to discredit politically and morally uh, the opposing tribe in society. So this isn't uh, about, you know, this particular kind of crime or this particular sort of um, social situation. It's, well, it's gun culture and those people who like this sort of thing, or it's those liberals who live in the cities and who won't do anything about it. So when it comes to um, deaths from firearms in the United States, I mean, there are really three, you know, kind of big separate categories that we have to talk about. Um, one is the fact that the majority of deaths from firearms in the United States are suicides. Um, dealing with suicides is a very different set of problems from dealing with violent crime. Uh, the second bucket of, of, of gun deaths in the, in the United States are ordinary, you know, street crime, uh, which tends to happen in a um, relatively predictable way in a relatively small number of neighborhoods. And these murders tend to be carried out by people who already have extensive arrest records and generally at least one felony conviction. Um, that is what you get into when we're talking about, you know, enforce the laws we already have. And it is an enormous problem. Um, you know, as I pointed out in my writing about this, I, I pick on Philadelphia just because I spent a day sitting in gun court there, um, cataloging this stuff, but you know, they dismiss 60% of gun cases without prosecuting them. And, um, that's, that's up, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, um, uh, less than 10 years ago, it was 30%. So there's a reason that number has, has gone up to the extent that it has. And this is a policy decision. Um, we do generally a pretty poor job of prosecuting crimes, including violent crimes that involve firearms short of homicide. Um, so just simple, you know, illegal possession of a firearm gets prosecuted very, very rarely. Uh, your chances of actually doing jail time for that crime are something like uh, one in 11, I want to say, last time I looked. Um, so it's it's not something that we seem to take uh, very seriously. Uh, straw buyers, you know, we famously do not really prosecute unless it's part of a larger gun trafficking or organized crime uh, investigation. Part of that, I assume, is uh, is a defensible manpower decision, but it still is the case that if you are straw buying a gun for somebody, you're very very unlikely to get prosecuted for that, even if that gun subsequently ends up being used in a in a murder or another another violent crime. And the third category of things, of course, is these um, these terrorist spectaculars um, that you know target schools, or theaters, or other sorts of public places. These are not as easy to foresee in the same way other kinds of common violent crimes are, because they aren't typically carried out by people who have extensive criminal records. Uh, they tend often to be carried out by people who are known to the authorities for mental health reasons or for um, for smaller criminal matters, you know, they've been involved in, um, in domestic altercations, things like that, or, um, you know, smaller, um, smaller infractions. And that seems to me largely a question of not being assertive enough about certain kinds of mental health intervention and oversight. Uh, if you've ever, you know, observed the process or been through the process of trying to have someone declared uh, mentally incompetent or have them committed to a middle institution against their um, wishes, it is very, very difficult to do. Um, I, I've already heard people saying, you know, in this Nashville case that, you know, that should have been done. I've, I've covered a couple of these cases and, and observed a couple of these cases. I'm not sure actually it, it could have successfully been done in this case, um, although certainly maybe it should have been tried. Um, there is an argument for, um, you know, wider deployment of, you know, sort of short-term emergency measures in, in these sorts of cases where you can have, um, rather than an open-ended uh, commitment, you know, a, uh, you know, five or 10 day emergency observation period. Those, those are available in some jurisdictions They're not available in some jurisdictions. They might do some good in some of these cases. You know, in this particular case, there was a school with locked doors, but it had glass doors in the front, which the shooter just shot through and then walked through the, uh, the open doors. But, you know, having uh, access points that are less easy to uh, defeat probably would be helpful. I understand why people are, um, hesitant about having armed personnel in, in schools, but certainly having uh, chemical sprays and things like that and teaching teachers and staff how to use them would probably be a very effective solution. Um, I have been pepper sprayed once in my life. A friend of mine just decided it would be funny to pepper spray me. 
And um, Richie Peterson, if you're out there listening, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> and um, funny guy, psychiatrist. But um, it would certainly stop you from being an effective shooter for, for 10 or 11 minutes, which often will be enough time for the police to get there and, uh, and take over and intervene. So there are things that we could do. You know, in terms of gun regulation, um, I tend to oppose this for the most part, um, at least the sort of thing that's put forward, because it's put forward on faulty premises, which is that AR-15s are some sort of, you know, special dangerous gun. They're not. Um, they operate much like every other gun on the market, every other semi-automatic rifle you can buy. They aren't especially powerful. Um, they're a good deal less powerful than, you know, typical hunting rifles. Um, the worst school shooting, of course, we had was at Virginia Tech, and that was carried out by a guy with a couple of handguns and, and no rifles at all. So this focus on um, the AR as a um, kind of cultural symbol, as a, as a totem, I think is a waste of time and leads us away from potential, uh, potentially more beneficial solutions. I mean, there are things you can do in terms of uh, gun regulation, I think, that are consistent with the Second Amendment and that might be good policies. Um, there are arguments for, you know, raising the minimum age at which you can buy any kind of firearm. I think there's a pretty defensible case for that. Uh, there are certainly, you know, time and place exemptions, which makes sense. You know, for you can't carry a gun on 6th Street in Austin or on the Las Vegas Strip or things like that. Those aren't current rules, but they probably should be rules. Um, you know, you can't carry guns in, um, you know, certain kinds of nightlife and entertainment districts, that sort of thing. And you do get a lot of shootings um, in those places, too, some of which get reported as mass shootings. They're not really, you know, manifesto type mass shootings, but they are, um, you know, disputes in which several people get shot. So there are things that can be done um, in terms of prohibiting certain classes of firearms. I don't think it's constitutional to uh, do so, but I also don't think it would be a very useful or effective policy. Uh, we just don't have really much reason to think that it would. And um, it's based on myth largely and symbolism. Jonah, this brings up a couple of things here. One, you know, the parents in Michigan, this was now several school shootings ago, I am sad to say. Um, so you may not even remember it, but those parents are being charged with manslaughter related to their kid um, uh, killing people at his high school. Should we be taking the parents' role in this more seriously? And does it matter whether the kid's a minor or a 28-year-old living at home who, you know, stashed seven guns in the house? Yeah, so, you know, I had to talk about this on CNN last week. And when I first saw it in the, like, the, the prep material, I just assumed I was going to go in and be like, this is crazy, parents' rights. You don't visit the sins of the child on the parents, you know, all the rest. And then you actually read the details of that case. And it's pretty close to bad you know, to extreme cases make for bad law kind of stuff, because these were almost singularly craptacular parents. I mean, just really horrible, horrible parents who had all sorts of warning signs that this kid was a candidate for being a, a school shooter, um, like writing on math tests, how he was going to kill people. Um, um, at one point he talks about, uh, how his first victim is going to be, is going to be a, a popular girl who's got her whole life ahead of her, who things are going great for is just so she knows what it's like to feel as hopeless as I do this kind of thing. And when the school told the parents, they laughed it off. The mom ignored texts warning about this. Um, they told him to just sort of toughen up when he was begging for, for psychiatric help. And it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, when you think about it, a teenager, it's hard for teenagers to ask for help. And he did. Um, I'm not saying he was the, you know, whatever it just, there were all sorts of red flags. And, and it, so at first I'm still like, well, parents, it's different, you know, but they let him have access to a gun. And I, the way I kind of thought about it was, what if it's a boarding school and it's the headmaster or the head of the dorm that uh, with the, all the other facts being the same, being knowing that this kid was that much of a mess and did nothing and let him have access to a gun, man, would you sue the school? Would you hold that guy accountable? So why should parents get an exemption from that when they actually have better knowledge and more resources to deal with the kid? 
So I'm in favor of prosecuting those guys. I, you know, whether the sentence is matched up right, you know, what level of man, you know, manslaughter or homicide, I don't know. But um, I hate the idea of starting to do that. More generally, yeah, parents should care more. Parents should be more involved. It is harder because of all the social media stuff these days um, to really know what your kids are exposed to. Like my wife, my wife and I found out that our daughter is on TikTok and we're like, oh, let's go check out her TikTok thing. And my wife is still upstairs hugging her knees, rocking back and forth um, <laughs> uh, from the experience. Um, and so I have sympathy for parents trying to figure this stuff out. But um, whether the law as a matter of course should be going after parents, I leave it to other people to figure out how that would work. It makes me really nervous. What I think is hard is, as you mentioned, the Michigan case is so extreme. I mean, the part, as you said, I actually find the whole thing really heartbreaking um, because the kids seemed to want help so much. The parents were at the school that day, hadn't bothered to check whether he had brought the gun with him to school. They leave and an hour later, he's killing his classmates. I mean, not that that's the standard for the legal liability by any means, but it just, it goes to the heartbreaking aspect of how preventable this was and how many different chances, you know, God sent a helicopter, a boat, a scooter, like all the different things. A freaking Pegasus. Right? Everything. <laughs> I think it, um, it matters where people get guns, you know, people who are prohibited from, from having them, whether they're minors or people who have some, you know, felony conviction or another legal prohibition. And I don't know what our criminal negligence statutes look like, but it might be worth considering the possibility of revising those in such a way as to bring some more heat into the situations where people are providing guns to people who shouldn't have. Yeah. And I, but you've touched on something, Kevin, that I think is to me far more likely than the Michigan case, which is your kid has a problem and you do reach out for help. And there's actually not a lot of help that can be provided to you because of how difficult in the last 60 or so years we've made involuntary commitment. In this case, of course, it's an adult child living with them. Um, the law has really changed pretty dramatically since, let's say, the you know 40s, 50s in terms of involuntary commitment. We thought that what was happening before was pretty cruel. Um, you know, any family member that was just sort of a problem that you didn't want to deal with, you just commit them or your wife's being uppity, commit her. Wait, what now? <laughs> That's an option. <laughs> Did you know that? Uh, so we changed the laws to make that a lot harder for good reason. But now we see the problem, whether it's homelessness, you know, people with severe mental health problems who cannot maintain housing or jobs living on the street and they can't be committed or, you know, a 28 year old child. I think it's really hard to blame the parents when this, you know, you could call 911 tomorrow and they'd be like, did they commit a crime? No, I think they will commit a crime. Well, have they done it? You know, like what is, what are the police supposed to do? What are the parents supposed to do? Um, and that's what I think makes it hard. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about this though, was something Jonah brought up briefly, Kevin, which is, um, I don't know how it's been covered in the media. Obviously the, transgender aspect, which we don't even have the full details on, by the way, there just was this whole rush to like, definitely make this a transgender thing on both sides, frankly, that we don't know this person. Um, we don't have a lot of facts over what the details of any of this were and their gender identity seems frankly, like the least important thing compared to three, nine-year-olds being killed. But to Jonah's point, um, what do we do about the name of the shooter, the manifesto of the shooter, these things that we know can encourage copycats, but that also people have a right to know sometimes, et cetera. How are we supposed to balance all that? And how do we standardize it so that we don't have the Jonah beef, which is when it's one group that does the attack, you release the manifesto and blame the group. But when it's a different quote unquote group that does the attack, Again, I don't even think we know a lot about this person to say that they're a member of anything, but we'll see, I suppose. Um, how do we deal with all of that? Should we be releasing names, manifestos, et cetera? You know, when it comes to the manifestos and stuff, I just have, I have a really hard time getting my head around the vision of someone wagging their finger at someone and saying, you shot nine-year-olds for a really, really bad reason, you know, as opposed to one of the good reasons to shoot nine-year-olds. Um, 
I think all of that stuff is sort of secondary. I tend to want to err on the side of openness and transparency and to demystify some of this stuff. I think that, um, you know, one of the ways to dispel the aura of, um, you know, power and, uh, and potency that survives these sort of things is to demystify them, to make the details as public as possible. Um, I think that's true of a lot of, a lot of other kinds of crimes, uh, as well. I'm not always a, a popular opinion. So yeah, in general, I'm, I'm in favor of doing that. Um, I don't know how strong the evidence is for, um, these contributing to copycat effects. I mean, it's not as though the stories aren't going to be out there. Um, we all are going to know about Columbine, irrespective of how many of the details actually came out. And the facts that are going to be inevitably in the news are probably going to be sufficient for copycats, I would think. Um, although maybe there are some stylistic things uh, that, are, that are not uh, going to be if they're, if they're not, not out there. You know, in this particular case, um, people with serious mental health problems have a habit of sort of picking up on things that are sort of culturally in the air around them. Um, you know, if you're not in a Christian society, you don't find people saying they're the second coming of Jesus. Um, they pick something else. So to that extent, you know, the fact that this person um, identified as trans and preferred uh, masculine pronouns and that sort of thing. Um, who even knows if that if this person were, um, you know, clinically evaluated, that she would have actually been found to be genuinely a transgender person as opposed to a person who's got some profound mental disturbances that are attached to this, that, and the other thing, as it tends to happen with people like that. So making this the central issue of the case, I think, is, is foolish. Um, not that it shouldn't be explored and considered. I mean, I think that all aspects of situations like this should be, should be studied by the people with the relevant expertise and authority to do so. But um, it doesn't seem to me like it's a, a top 10 issue. I, I generally agree with all that. I do think waiting a standardized period of time before releasing the manifestos makes sense. When everyone's blooded up, and everyone is doing this, no, it's your side, and no, it's your side, which I find the whole thing so friggin' grotesque. Um, releasing it in that context is like just giving one side ammo. And I could see that, and that's amplifying the manifesto, right? And that is amplifying the motivations to do this kind of thing. If, you, if you're this kind of person who says, when people read my words, they'll understand why I did this kind of thing. There's no reason to reward that feeling on their timetable. Wait a month when people move on to something else and then say, oh, it turns out that that mass shooter, because it's not, the public has a right to know. It doesn't have the right to know right now. And anything, you know, like I think the media has finally figured out about not releasing the names and not using the names of these mass killers, which I think is clearly not stop them, but it helps at the margins. Um, do we know that it helps at the margins? I don't, well, we know, I don't think it hurts at the margins. I mean, um, and I don't know. You're right. We don't know. But um, intuitively, I think it probably is, until proven otherwise, and until proven that it hurts, it's probably the right way to go. Just knowing how particularly young men, and again, most of these things are still young men, um, want their names to ring out. They want to be like one of the 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 drone warriors in, in, in Mad Max witness me, right? They want to have the status of doing these kinds of things and denying them that even if it doesn't deter them, just denying it as a punishment, it seems to me worthwhile. I think it started by the way, because, uh, there were mass shooters who were mimicking Columbine and had read that manifesto, et cetera. And so we knew that there had, but to your point, Kevin, if not Columbine manifesto, maybe they would have latched on to some other thing, right? That the, the causation versus correlation, I think is impossible to prove. Um, and I, I do find it really, really upsetting that the conversation seems now so focused on, you know, the misgendering or the transgender aspect of this. When again, I don't think we actually know a whole lot about this person. I think both sides are sort of jumping to put this person in the bucket that most fits their framework of what the transgender culture war is about instead of this actual person. Um, and so I find that all pretty frustrating when there's three families whose, you know, kids aren't getting tucked in tonight. 
uh, and instead of focusing on them. All right, I want to move to France, Jonah. Who doesn't? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a great photo of uh, two Parisians at a you know local coffee shop or whatever sipping coffee while there was a fire in the street behind them <laughs> and it was you know just the best photo ever right like it perfectly encapsulates the french experience or at least the french stereotype that we all have um but we think of sort of the quasi socialist western democracy states in europe having these perpetual problems when they try to you know, realize that they don't have enough money to do everything for all the people at the rate that they were doing it. And then it leads to these protests and strikes, um, et cetera. And this sort of convulsion happens every now and again. It seems like Paris is a very popular place for it to happen, I'll note. Um, but I want to tie it back to what we're experiencing, which is basically both parties saying no to entitlement reform on their watch. And so... I mean, are they right in a sense? If you're just going to have fires in the street and protests and you're not going to get it done anyway, <laughs> to quote one dean at a popular law school, is the juice worth the squeeze, Jonah? I could go a long time without hearing that expression. Again. I know. I am going to um, issue a, uh, uh, I'm going to consult with Steve and issue a, an internal memorandum that no one is allowed to use that phrase at the dispatch for six weeks, um, unless they're actually talking about juicing. Um, so, uh, you know, some people might remember one of my favorite, uh, insights comes from Seymour Martin Lipset, where he once said, uh, or actually said it a lot, but, um, if you only know one country, you don't know any countries, um, in the sense that you can't really understand anything about America unless you understand something about some other countries to see why we're different. And that's true. Of Canada versus Costa Rica or France versus Belize or whatever. Um, and I keep thinking about the, in, the, the, the pension fund crisis in France in the context of if you only followed American politics and you only listened to say AOC and Bernie Sanders and, and that crowd, or Joy Reid, you would think that the the people who pay attention to this obscure topic called math um, just want to hurt old people, and and that 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 people who think we need to reform entitlements know in their hearts that we have all the money in the world, and we could be much more generous with old people and poor people. And we just refuse to because we don't like them. And that's the way um, a lot of people on the left talk about this stuff. And they seem to think that the math in America works differently. Maybe it's a form of American exceptionalism. We should celebrate it. That math in America works differently than in other Western industrialized countries. And it turns out, no, it turns out that almost every country, to one extent or another, is undergoing a similar problem which is that the amount of money that we have to give to people when they get old and are no longer part of the, part of the labor force um, is diminished because we have fewer workers to pay for it. And this was always a bit of a Ponzi scheme. And, um, and you have to ask the question, is, is progressive France full of these, uh, you know, these anti-old people people who um, hate you know, the poor and the needy? Or is it just simply a math problem? And, um, and so I, I like all the coverage of this. I, I don't particularly love France's insta-protest culture, which has a very long and deep tradition. I mean, there's, you know, I worked on a, I, I wrote and produced a documentary about the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And one of the things that people don't know is that the Place de Notre Dame, the big space out front, it didn't used to be like that. You used to have to like, uh, walk through these little medieval, medieval alleys and streets, and then you would turn a corner, and all of a sudden you would see this giant cathedral. And part of the idea was that it would draw your eyes to God by making you have to look up because you suddenly saw it. And Baron Hausmann, the great sort of the Robert Moses of Paris, um, who did a lot of urban redesign in Paris, said, yeah, we can't have that anymore. And he created this giant plaza in front of it because he wanted to be able to have snipers at the top of the church 
for when the mob traditionally would storm the cathedral and kill all the priests. <laughs> and um, so there's a tradition in France going back a long way of trying to settle public policy differences through mass uh, violence. And I don't really like that, but um, it is an interesting cautionary tale. Kevin, what about our pension? I mean, what about our uh, social safety net reforms? What of it? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, you know, in France, it is fun to watch socialists learn. And, uh, you know, Macron originally was elected as a, as a socialist. He has evolved uh, over the years into a more sensible kind of politician. You know, Joni used the phrase, all the money in the world. I actually added it up a few years ago, and the numbers may have changed some. But at the time, our uh, public debt at the federal, state, and local level, along with our unfunded liabilities for the various pensions and uh, entitlement programs, was actually a little bit more than all the money in the world, uh, meaning all the cash in circulation and all the money in depository accounts and CDs and things like that. So all the money in the world is not going to solve even our problem, much less uh, the problems of the rest of the uh, Western welfare states. I suppose it's a, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a belly and the cat issue for us. There are things we could do right now and things we could have done over the last 20 years that would make this a radically easier problem to solve. Um, you know, small changes in our entitlement system, which is in some ways more tractable than your, your typical European model, particularly the French model, um, would have made it much more sustainable and easy to manage for a long time by, you know, raising the tax rates going into it and raising the age of retirement slightly changing some of the uh, formulas and, um, and particularly reforming some of the um, irresponsible uh, oversight mechanisms in uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which can be just shocking. Um, I'm, I'll be the first person to shake my fist at someone who says we're going to fix this by taking care of waste, fraud, and abuse. But the uh, fraud in, in, in some of these programs is just remarkable. Um, just uh, I think there was one estimate from an economist a few years ago that um, 20% of Medicaid uh, money is misspent, either uh, you know through fraud or uh, or um, you know improperly approved uh, payments. So that's uh, that's a big number. Um, obviously, there's no political benefit right now in it for anybody to be the person who's going to step up and deal with these things. Uh, the Republican Party seems to have given up um, on it entirely. That's one of the many. Many wonderful legacies of the Trump years is a Republican Party that doesn't care about these things anymore and has stopped uh, even pretending to care about them. I mean, and the terrible part is, of course, that um, the longer we wait to start doing something, the fewer options we have and the more it's going to hurt. So we've got a lot of options still right now. You know, we're not in a fiscal crisis. We're a country with a pretty healthy economy and carrying too much public debt, but it's not, um, you know, it's not an unfixable problem. It's only an unfixable problem if you refuse to, to do what's necessary to fix it, which I'm afraid is, is where we're going to be for a while still. Let's, let's go to our not worth your time here. Not worth your time question mark. Uh, do y'all use chat GPT yet? No, I, I poke around with it. I, I, I find it not as scary as people find it, although I haven't used the souped up version of it yet. Um, it gets a lot of things wrong for sure. Um, it's worth poking around with. I think it really is. It's kind of interesting and fun. Um, Should we think of this like calculators in the sense that, you know, when we were growing up, there was still some emphasis on knowing how to do the math without a calculator. And that's really not the case anymore for kids. I don't mean they don't learn their multiplication tables. They do. Um, but by and large, after that, it's generally teaching them how to use a calculator or how to use a computer, um, you know, similar to then we have the internet revolution. And it's really not about memorizing things anymore. It's about how to form your searches uh, on a search engine. That's actually the skill set that's going to be more helpful. And I wonder whether we will look back and think of this as the next, um, you know, big change in how we teach kids how to learn. I think it's going to be hugely transformative. You know, um, you know, we were both at a thing where someone who was talking about this said that within 10 years, no one, no high school kid is going to write a first draft of their papers anymore. And, um, um, and the fact that, that AI programs cannot detect whether something was written by an AI program 
means why that should all they? Talk- Where's their incentive to do that? <laughs> no, exactly. And you know, and, and it's just I mean, let's take a, a step backwards here. I, for one, welcome our new AI overlords and can be of great use and service to them in their uh, managing their silicon b- minds. Um, no, I, 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 I think this is. I'm not sure I'm in favor of this pause for recording this on Thursday morning. A bunch of tech tech uh, super super bros have said that we should have a pause on AI research. I'm not there. So a, it's not going to happen, and B, I'm not sure it's a good idea if it could. Um, um, but I do think this is a it's it's worth your time to pay attention to. Okay, so Kevin, here's my question to you. One of the um, benefits of Chat GPT and the AI writing stuff uh, seems to be that while many technologies were most beneficial to the people who were already the elite, um, that may not be true for this. And so the, you know, to the extent that our competitive advantage in the marketplace was being smart or being a good writer, that Delta is about to shrink. Other people are about to be great writers with the help of AI. Um, So should we be worried? Should we be sad <laughs> that we spent all this time learning how to write only for that to then be taken over by someone else? I'm not sure they are going to be uh, great writers. Um, I think bad writers are going to be better writers, but great writers are not going to be replaced. It has to be more grammatical and um, possibly more um, idiomatic. Now, I used to teach college writing, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether things were actually written by human beings or not. And uh, I've, I've, I've often had my doubts. I have in my mind a Paul Krugman column from the 1990s. And, um, you know, Paul Krugman, winner of the Nobel Prize in economics, winner of the John Bates Clark Medal and all that, wrote this column about how the internet was this really overblown thing. And that 50 years from now, we'd look back on it and think it wasn't any more of a cultural milestone than the invention of the fax machine. And um, he has subsequently revisited that and, uh, and has confessed his, his error. So I don't want to put myself in, in that position, but um, I do have some um, skepticism about the effectiveness of the various applications to which this technology will be put. I think it'll be pretty useful for you know customer service things and stuff like that. Uh, you know, being able to deal with a um, with a digital system in natural language, I think is going to be really really helpful to people. That's a tough nut to crack that people have been working on for a long long time. I think that the um, domination of the superficial levels of communication by um, AI-enabled modes of communication is probably something that'll be um, a fact of life, you know, for things like Twitter and social media. I tend to think that that actually will add to the value of um, the more careful, creative, thorough forms of human output, like books and uh, long essays and things like that. Because those things aren't really about, can I make sentences? It's about what conceptual things can I put together in a way that is useful. So um, anyone who's ever been an editor knows that um, one of the main challenges for for particularly beginning writers isn't that they don't know how to put sentences together, it's that they don't have anything interesting to say, or they don't have any uh, you know particularly um, useful ideas or, uh, or insights. Um, so, Jonah once described uh, in one of his pieces about youth politics is people at the, the bottom end of the learning curve. And I don't think that giving them a tool to make them you know, more effective producers of meaningless and banal prose is going to necessarily uh, reshape the world. Doesn't, Ke- doesn't Kevin sound like a fun editor to have? He does, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine owns her own business and texted me last night that uh, ChatGPT is writing all of her marketing emails just developed an onboarding plan for her and it helped plan the theme for her one-year-old's birthday party. It may, it saved her so much time yesterday. You know, for again, you think of a small business owner and all these things that just like, ugh, suck time that aren't actually doing your job. I don't know. It sounds pretty good. You know who is, you know, it, it's interesting. This is one of the first technological breakthroughs that that I, to my knowledge, the porn industry isn't an early adopter of, and um, but those aren't really hard scripts to write, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the dialogue, man. It's important. No, uh, but the this is going to be a massive, massive boon to uh, spammers, to scammers. You know, Nigerian princes, because you got a lot of these guys in Russia and Nigeria and wherever who don't speak idiomatic American English. 
And now they can say, ChatGTP, tell me, tell me a story about uh, how I need to get uh, $500,000 to get someone $5 million, and that'll write it much better. That's a really good point. Man, it's going to help everyone, the small business owners for scammers in Nigeria and the small business owners here at home. Uh, ChatGPT, sounds like it's worth your time to learn the skills uh, to work with ChatGPT for now, at least. Then we can fight them later in the, the drone wars. Uh, until then, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Kevin and Jonah. And we will talk to you next week.